we want to acknowledge that we meet and work on the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri people and the Bunrung people of the Kulin Nation. We pay our respects to elders past, present and emerging and acknowledge the continued resilience of First Nations peoples in the face of ongoing colonization and settlement. And we acknowledge that sovereignty was never ceded and a treaty was never signed. Tracy, our breakfast. Oh, yeah. Alternative news, analysis, and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7 a.m. to 8 30 a.m. It is Wednesday the 30th of May and you are on 3CR Breakfast. And I think there's almost a full moon out there. There was this morning on the yeah, over gorgeous. the other side of the sky. Gorgeous yeah. driving in. Very yeah. cold though. <laughs> yeah, actually. Yeah, so and you're wearing your really warm winter coat. Yeah, but I, I've got shorts on uh, because <laughs> I, all my pants are in the wash, so I don't know. <laughs> uh, Obviously got to clean that up. But Warm yeah. in the studio. It is. It is nice in here, but uh, yeah, if you are uh, heading out today, 15 degrees uh, and a late shower or two, so do rug up, get an umbrella, take it with you. 14 for Thursday, partly cloudy. 16 for Friday, which is the first day of winter as well. Oh, official. Yeah, it's first, official first on Friday. Yeah. Okay. And then Saturday, 16 and partly cloudy. So that's what we've got. It's yeah. Cold weather for the next that's few days, right, but we've right got lots now. coming up um, this morning. We do. And later, after 8 o'clock, we'll be talking to Professor Rick Sarr. He's from the School of Law, University of South Australia, and he's uh, done some writing about why random identification checks at airports are a bad idea. So we'll, we'll be talking to him about that. And also Jamie Cordwell from the Australian Marine Conservation Society about the Brisbane Council's decision. They've decided to ban um, uh, plastic straws and um, move in to ban helium balloons, plastic, you know, a lot of moves in their event, the events that they've organised. Uh, also hearing from uh, Liberty Victoria about, well, about Peter Dutton and his Home Affairs Ministry and the ever-expanding uh, powers and ever-expanding uh, encroachments on our privacy. Well, yeah, that's really important, actually. We need to really be keeping an eye on that. And also we're going to, we're not going to go live to Ireland, but we're going to hear from Ireland about uh, the decision about the uh, Irish abortion or the, re- the referendum to repeal Amendment 8. And we're going to be speaking to Karen Toomey, who's from Repeal Global, about the, the work that that organization did. Um, and... And, and the Woman Jenkin Festival comes back again. I went across on, on Sunday to hear the music and uh, I got to speak to Lady Lash. How does music and sounds and frequencies connect you to who you are? Lady Lash, and uh, we'll be hearing that interview around 7.30. Um, hey, do you, do you want to hear what I did last night quickly? Or do you, do yeah, you to... Oh, well, uh, well, why don't we? I do want to hear what you did last yeah, night. Yeah. But let's just also say that we'll also be hearing from uh, Professor James Chin about the Malaysian elections, which has been fascinating because the ruling party was overturned, uh, you know, first time since uh, the, the new nation began, 1957. So he's going to be telling us a bit about that. But what did you do last night, Nick? So I went out to Nary Warren, out to a new centre near Fountain Gate called uh, Beringia, um, which is quite an impressive building that didn't exist about 12 months ago. But I was there to see 
an organisation called the Drug Advisory Council of Australia um, and see their, their meeting because they're, they're meeting to talk about drug policies in this uh, state yes. and in this country at the moment. Now, a bit of a misleading name because the Drug Advisory Council of Australia is largely made up of uh, three uh, evangelical Christian front groups, Delgano oh, Institute, Drug Free Australia, oh, okay. uh, and there is one more. So, so, uh, so not a harm minimisation style? No, and not, not particularly. Particular, look, out of the four speakers, uh, one was a, a youth minister, so a lot of what he had to say, um, although he was very charismatic and very good at saying it, unfortunately didn't quite meet with the facts. Um, there was a uh, mother, always interesting to hear a story from somebody who's, you know, had some first-hand experience, yes, uh, largely course. anecdotal yeah. experience, yeah. Uh, and a, um, a counsellor uh, as well who works with families and works with um, with people on issues, and, and she had some interesting thing to, things to say as well. Uh, and then uh, one final speaker uh, who was uh, from uh, one of the organisations, I can't remember which one she was from, but again, just a little bit, um, a little bit strange on the facts, but I just thought it was uh, interesting. There were a number of MPs there. There was uh, uh, Inga Pulik, who's uh, from the Liberals for the South Eastern Metro region. There were about three or four councillors. Um, now, down in Casey, uh, the Casey Council has had a lot of troubles um, over the past few years. Uh, a couple of years ago, uh, well, actually, over the past few years, a uh, councillor called uh, Rosalie Cristani, uh, who ran for Rise Up Australia, Danny Nalia's um, sort of hard-right, uh, xenophobic kind of party. Uh, she caused a lot of trouble with the council. She's been trying to uh, get rid of anything to do with LGBTI support in the Casey um, community. Um, she's been uh, basically putting um, council meetings on hold if she doesn't get her way. And I've been along well, with a few of those Nick, this sounds like, you know, a whole other story, but I am mm. reminded that we had Greg Denham on last week talking about a kind of antidote to that meeting. And that's on today, actually, four to six, it where is, we're yes. going to hear uh, from um, politicians who actually travel the world to look at the most progressive uh, drug policies and uh, were involved in the, the new legislation. So... That's that. That will be later. I mean, that's today. <laughs> if you want to get along to that, but uh, yes. Oh. So first up this morning, uh, a poem from uh, Felicia Malay, who we had in uh, in a show. Um, I remember about a month and a half ago. It must have been maybe yeah, two months ago now. And mm. she's she's um she's written another poem and performed another poem that's uh, been another hit, and the title of the poem is "When Men Birth." This is Felicia Malay. I lay there wet and howling. My head backed upon your chest, legs spread each baritone breath, bringing her from the stars. We sang her in together. That first song, the oldest song, a tone of total surrender. My sacrum sharp, my lips burning, I called, woman, woman. I called upon a millennia of sistery, genetic history. You see, I have done this million times before. I called to Demeter, she who birthed the seasons. As the wattle began to bloom, I called to Bodicea, who battled for my blood, kelp fire. I called to Eve. For the moment, she set free the seeds of the apple tree, you see. Right here was our very own fruit of our very own temptation. But I wonder now, on who did you call? Women have been present at birth since the beginning of time. We have survived, struggled and died in this space. In some ways, I think we do every time. Our role is clear. Open up, surrender, 
dance the pain and let life emerge. But I wonder now, on who did you call? It's been, what, a couple of hundred years since men began to enter the birthing space. First in the room, then by the bed, perhaps holding a hand, and then the grand gesture of cutting the cord awarded to Dad so as to feel included. But you did it differently. You and a few other men. True warriors, carving a new path. Warriors who've decided to join the dance after all they did take to the tango in the first place. Warriors who've decided that this is as much your labor as hers, that this is as much your child as hers. True warriors carving a new path. So millennia time, when he howls by her side, when they are marching breath to breath into the void, when she, like me, falls back onto his solid ground in her moments of fear and doubt and fatigue, when she calls upon Demeter, Bodicea, Eve, who will he call upon? When they are searching for their role in this, this fire, who will he call upon? Who? Men like you. This is the time of the great cleansing. The purification. The great purge. Dissolving into chaos. and collective an echo, echo, echo the great cycle of duality is closing
being separate is closing. It's a great step in our evolution into multidimensional awareness. Step Project uh, producer from Byron Bay with New Generations there. And before that, you heard Fleece Him Lay, When Men Birth, and you can find a video of that online. This mm. is 3CR Wednesday Breakfast, about quarter past seven. It is, and uh, what a beautiful voice Fleece Him Lay has, really. is great. So are you? I'm, I'm sure you're aware that there was a, an election in Malaysia earlier this month which was quite dramatic because it saw the defeat of the Barazan National Coalition, which had governed Malaysia since the country's independence in 1957. So that is a huge, huge change. People are now wondering, of course, you know, if the country's going to be changed as a result of, of that uh, outcome. And Professor James Chin is going to talk to us about that. He's the director of the Asia Institute at the University of Tasmania. And um, I began, he was actually in Malaysia for the campaign, all the campaign, and also for the election itself. So I started by asking him just, you know, what was it like being there? Elections in Southeast Asia is more of a festival atmosphere, and uh, people like to give out stuff for free. On the other hand, you also have some very serious political debates going on about the future of the country. People thought that this election outcome would be very similar to all the previous elections in Malaysia. So I think there was a big shock when the results came out. Were you surprised yourself? Initially, I thought that the ruling Barisan National will probably win the elections again. I changed my mind 48 hours before actual polling day on 9th of May for the very simple reason that when I started going to political rallies, I noticed that there was a great shift on the ground, started to shift probably three or four days before polling day. You say in one of your articles that when Malaysians woke up on May the 10th, the day after the election, they experienced a sense of optimism that had been missing for some time. Why is that? The population was very weary of the government, and they were very worried that if the prime minister is involved in grand corruption, he will bring the entire country down. So I think the mood among the people was that if he carries on as the prime minister, Malaysia really doesn't have a future. And I think what happened was that his name became very toxic and that the only way for the country to recover was to replace him as a prime minister and also to replace the ruling party. Was there something specific that really got people upset? So it's widely understood in Malaysia that the previous ruling party called AMNO has been involved in corruption, mainly dealing with government contracts. But this time, the accusation against the Prime Minister was different for two reasons. The first one was the amount involved was quite large, 4 to 5 billion US dollars. So that's a huge amount. The second unique thing was that it has been alleged that part of this 4 to 5 billion dollars was missing. 
$700 million US dollars ended up in his personal bank account. So again, that's actually quite unusual. So normally the way it works in Malaysia is that uh, those involved, they'll use a proxy, usually somebody with an account overseas or outside Malaysia to receive the money. But in this case, it was quite blatant. The $700 million uh, apparently went into the Prime Minister's personal account based in Malaysia. Incredible arrogance, and uh, and still he thought he would win the election. Yes, prior to the election, I actually spoke to quite a number of people in the ruling party, and they were very confident that they were going to win. Uh, one of the reasons they were very confident uh, was simply that they managed to gerrymander the electoral system, so they shifted a lot of the voters to the rural areas, and they increased the number of seats in the rural areas. So they thought that as long as they hold on to the rural Malay vote, it will be an easy win for the ruling party. And just uh, just out of curiosity, what kind of access to media do people in the rural areas have in, in Malaysia? Do they have access to all media or are they limited? This is a really interesting question. So the bottom line is that unlike earlier elections, at this time social media play a very, very important role in getting up the messages from both sides, both the governing and the opposition. So for the majority of the people living in the rural areas, what I found was that a lot of them got their political news from an application called WhatsApp. So that was the main medium in use. Urban areas, people were using WhatsApp and Facebook mostly. And I understand the overseas voters also collaborated using social media to organize to get their votes back to Malaysia. Yes. But in terms of going back to Malaysia to vote, even though there was a huge campaign to ask the overseas voters to come back to Malaysia, the reality is that the overseas voters accounted for less than 2% of all the voters. So they really don't, did not play any role in, in the opposition win. And um, we're speaking with uh, Professor, we're hearing from Professor James Chin, Director of the Asia Institute at the University of Tasmania. And... Uh, while the result is exciting, I guess it's also kind of fraught with, with danger as well. And uh, Dr. Chin, or Professor Chin, now tells us what he feels Malaysia has to do very quickly. I think it's crucially important that the new administration immediately deals with the long-standing issues facing Malaysia. Uh, the tendency now is that we will try to change a little bit here and there, but we will not deal with the difficult policies changes required. I think that will be a big mistake. Right now, the new government has lots of goodwill, what we call the honeymoon period. If they don't deal with the difficult issues facing Malaysia, there may not be another opportunity for them to deal with these issues. Things like the civil service. The Malaysian civil service is really bloated. Uh, there's about 1.6 million civil service in Malaysia and they easily constitute about 10% of the working population. If you don't reform the civil service, uh, it'll be very difficult to bring the country forward. The state education system in Malaysia is basically broken down. And again, if they don't deal with this issue, they'll be facing a lot of problems in the future. I understand that a lot of people are sending their children to private schools because they don't feel they'll get a good education in the state system. That is correct. In fact, the number of private schools in Malaysia in terms of the student enrolling in private schools in Malaysia is actually the highest in the entire Southeast Asian region. And one of the difficulties in trying to reform the state education system is that 
the qualities of teachers has really gone down the last 30 years. You know, it's all about getting the right people into the system. At the minimum, you're looking at a period of probably four to five years, so they really do not have a lot of time. They have to move very fast as it now. You talk about the Malay agenda. Now, I expect some people listening won't know what the Malay agenda is. Can you explain that? At the time of independence, uh, back in 1963, it was accepted that the majority of the Malaysian economy was in the hands of the Chinese community and that the indigenous Malay population had a very small share of the Malaysian economy, something like in the region of 2%. In 1970, the Malaysian government started an affirmative action called the Malay Agenda, and the idea was that the government would intervene in all aspects of the economy and social life in order to help the Malay community. Now, the original idea was widely accepted by the Malaysian community at large. People felt that, yes, we need to do something to help the Malay community. Somewhere along the line, the implementation of the Malay Agenda ended up as Malay political dominance. So what happened was during the implementation phase of the Malay agenda, the government started setting up quarters in all sectors of the economy. So the idea is that if you're a person who is classed as a Malay in Malaysia, you will have preference in all aspects of government policy. And because of that, many non-Malays feel that they're being discriminated against. And also at the same time, this allows an element of corruption into the government procurement system. Another issue you've identified is political Islam, and I'm wondering if you might just say a little bit about how that will impact the new administration. So in the last two decades, the Malaysian society has undergone a tremendous change. There are many groups out there in Malaysia now using Islam as the main platform for mobilization. Now, the worry is that many of these groups have been radicalized and they want to create an Islamic state in Malaysia. The problem with that idea is that it doesn't work in practice because 40% of the Malaysian population are non-Muslims. So if you were to set up an Islamic state in Malaysia, the first question you've got to deal with is that what do you do with 40% of the population? The way it works in the Islamic state is that non-Muslims do not have any political rights. So that's a big issue in Malaysia. Second big issue related to political Islam is that many of these groups are trying to impose a very fundamentalist view of Islam onto entire society. So we're talking about groups who are not only trying to establish Islamic State, but they try to establish Islamic State with a very, very exclusive view of Islam. And the idea is that they want to shut Malaysia off from the rest of the world. So it's a particular style of Islam that is not only in Malaysia, Indonesia also, I understand. So there are those groups that want to make it a Malaysia more fundamentalist state. I can't quite imagine Malays going for that. The thing is that the population in Malaysia, especially the Muslim population, is becoming more and more conservative. In many ways, the Malaysian Muslims are actually more conservative than the Indonesian Muslims. There's great fear among some sections of the Malaysian population that if these fundamentalists get into power, they will fully alter Malaysian society. Matthew has said that he'll be handing over power to Anwar Ibrahim. How likely is it that he will hand over power? I think the likelihood of Mahathir giving up power in two years' time is actually very good. We have to remember that Mahathir is 93 years old this year. So in two years' time, he'll be 95 years old. 
I doubt very much that he would want to hand on to power. You have to remember that the Prime Minister's job in Malaysia is highly stressful, so I'm not sure he wants to stay on after he's 95 years old. I'm very optimistic for the Malaysian system now, simply because if you look at the region, since the 1960s, almost all the countries of Southeast Asia has had regular elections and they regularly toss up their governments and change governments. The only two countries that have never changed governments in Southeast Asia is Singapore and Malaysia. So in terms of the development of democracy, I think what happened in Malaysia is a very positive outcome, that the new government will bring a lot of new measures in order to embed democracy in Malaysia for the future. And that's Professor James Chin, who's the director of the Asia Institute at the University of Tasmania. And it's great to hear his optimism about the, the results of the election in Malaysia. And I guess we'll have to keep an eye on that going forward. Wait and see what happens in that uh, part of Southeast Asia. Mm, hopefully amazing. hopefully changes afoot. But, Incredibly uh, complex society in Malaysia. So many different uh, groups, religions, uh, ethnic backgrounds. It's uh, really interesting. Just on 7.30, it is 3CR Wednesday Breakfast, and in just a couple of weeks' time now, the 3CR Radiothon Fight for Your Mic will be on. We're looking to raise a quarter of a million dollars to heap, uh, help keep the, uh, the station on air, help keep all the equipment going, uh, maybe... I, I think it's pretty much just operating costs, actually. I think quarter of a million dollars goes to operating costs. There's a lot that needs to, uh, needs to run, from the lights to the panels to the transmitter out in Werribee. And to uh, the training. And to the training, to everything that goes on yeah. here. Yeah. Uh, what we're asking is for you to pledge to your favourite show, which just might be Wednesday Breakfast, uh, <laughs> and um, help us raise uh, some small part of that quarter million dollars. Um, every contribution counts. 3cr.org.au forward slash donate if you want uh, to have a look on the website. And uh, I don't, I'm not sure if there is Radiothon stuff info on the website yet. There is. Um, uh, and so 3cr.org.au, go check it out, and that's the uh, the radiothon up soon. Yeah, well, yes, please donate, fight for your mic, exactly. <laughs> fight for your mic. So last week on Wednesday breakfast, we had uh, an interview with uh, Hannah Morphy Walsh, and she spoke to us about the Black to the Future exhibition by young Aboriginal artists. It's just a sensational exhibition. I was there on again <laughs> on the weekend, and just watching people going through, and people were really impressed. It, it really is a great exhibition. And, of course, on Sunday afternoon, there was the Little Woman Jika, which was the, the music, a kind of music festival. And there were, was a, an incredible lineup of young Aboriginal musicians. So there was Maylene Slater Burns, who was also on Wednesday breakfast last week talking about Snake and, uh, and Reconciliation Week. And she also is an amazing singer. There was Elaine Crombie, Brett Lee, Alara Briggs Patterson, Robert K. Champion. I mean, the range of music and musical styles was also pretty impressive. And Lady Lash. And I was lucky enough to catch up with her after her set. I'm talking to Lady Lash, who's just done an amazing performance. I think you can tell me just your background first. I'm originally from the Sejuna far west coast of South Australia. So I'm a Google the woman, 
and I'm also Greek, have Greek heritage. And yeah, I moved to Melbourne about over a decade ago. And, you know, evolving and looking through your life, your life's journey of, I always knew I wanted to be a singer, so this is where I am at this point. Fantastic. And because and your, your music was quite a number of traditions, mixed traditions, where do you place yourself? Um, I guess hip hop and jazz, soul, neo soul. And blues and you know ever evolving and working on a new another new album so it's all new sounds from the, my documentary there's a documentary about myself Lady Lass of going back to my um, hometown and going to woman's business with my Nana Sue Coleman Hazeldine and very powerful and learning so much coming back from country we have to save country our ancestors are, are bleeding because the miners, you know, over back in Sejuno, that we have to stop the mining that's happening. We've got to save the bite as well. The sea, I'm so connected to the sea and I'm a fisherman's daughter and, you know, just being at home um, just takes me back to, you know, when I was a little girl, warm and comfort and just being uh, so connected with, you know, my ancestors and my family. You, ha- you said you have one album out already. What's the title of that album? Um, I did release one last year called Cat's Eye Siren's Mouth. That was a little, a crazy spill that just came out in two weeks. Um, but I'm working on a new album, two new albums, one called Therapy Tapes. That's a lot of boom, bap and jazz. And I'm, I'm also evolving into this other sound from Sejuna, from what I've come back from country. And it's very, very feminine power. It's very modern times. And it's quite scary to jump in a different genre, but... You know, we all evolve and we all need to experience life, I feel, and to, um, to try and, you know, resonate with other, other, connecting with other people in this world, you know. How does music and sounds and frequencies connect you to who you are? You know, that's, that's, I feel like that's my life purpose as well, that to, you know, be here with the earth and here with our people and just to, for it to resonate, yeah. And in the background, we're hearing another very talented artist, and I think from not too far from where you come from, Robert Champion. Yes, amazing guitarist, Debbie, my cousin, that one, from Sejuna. So, and it's such an honour to see, you know, family come up and perform and show the gift to the world and just to give back to community. That's what it's all about. Lady Lash, and what an inspiring woman, and what a thrill to talk with her. She's already planning a second documentary, and uh, the music just keeps on coming. So here she is with Hershey Bars from the album Cat's Eye Soren's Mouth, which she released last year.
it off with my lyrical crown. Head held high with my message so proud. Walk in this world like a rose petal. Visions of righteous girls spitting heavy metal. Hold my hands as I follow you into hiding. With the sand swallowed by the silver lining. My mouth dry, but I'm hungry for that microphone. A lie, why? Got us jumping on these nights I blow. Ruby red lips, diamonds of the Nile. My subconscious through the eyes of a wild child. Transferred a book of rhymes from my deep brain. Pouring hearts with that tie made me rip the pain. Cinematic visions of this eight millimeter. Make shadows standing straight with my freedom. My hands so thick I meditate in the moment. Let my mind's focus, medicate in hypnosis. My revolution's on earth, living on the high rise, flowing with maddies. Poetry looking over time when you have these. Smoke mirrors for these seven deadly sins. Palms red deep with the future of a girl king. My throne's a nebula, sinking into Mercury. Searching southern skies, thinking out a galaxy. Cutting up our purse while I'm working on the system. But when berserk, got them twisted on my wisdom. Walking up these stones, pouring out a vixen. Mr. Whippy's famous, mountain in the distance. Fitting on the lack of lines with a brick face. Hitting energies with iron lack on my shoelace. Hazy blood visions into street ethics. Scuba words riddled into the cryptic message. Lady Lash uh, with um, the song Her She Bars from the album Cat's Eye Sorn's Mouth, which she released last year. 
The Indigenous Social Justice Association Melbourne is continuing its Stop Failing Our Kids campaign until this year's Victorian state election. We're asking people to sign an online petition and to send postcards to Premier Daniel Andrews, calling for his government to abandon plans to build a $288 million youth prison at Cherry Creek. We want that money directed to culturally appropriate programs to address the underpinning issues rather than incarcerating children. For more information and to sign the petition, visit Istra Melbourne's Facebook page. Postcards are available at 3CR and locations listed at istramelbourne.com. Premier, it's time your government stopped failing the kids. Istra Melbourne is a 3CR supporter. CR, always bringing you the latest union news. They're coming after us at the moment. They want to get rid of penalty rates, the big push from businesses. They want to get rid of all the things that you and I have fought for. Don't you know? 3CR, always bringing you the latest union news. They're coming after us at the moment. They want to get rid of penalty rates, the big push from businesses. They want to get rid of all the things that you and I have fought for. So there's tens of thousands of jobs gone, contracted out, to sham contracting arrangements. On 8.55am and on the web, 3cr.org.au. Three CR Wednesday breakfast uh, about twenty minutes away from eight o'clock, and uh, still a few more things to come onto the show. We are going to be catching up with uh, Liberty Victoria uh, very shortly, and uh, later on in the program after eight o'clock, uh, Professor Professor Rick Sarr um, on the um, random ID checks at airports, and also um, Jamie Cordwell from the Australian Marine uh, Conservation Society. Uh, 3cr.org.au is the website and you can find the Wednesday breakfast program page there. You can find previous podcasts there. Uh, also links to our Facebook where we, uh, we put up, try and get up some uh, info about things that we've talked about during the breakfast shows, um, whether it's a, a news article that's relevant to something that we've done or maybe there's uh, some, some video like the Fleecy Malay poem. Uh, so you can go and check that out there. Yeah, and um, you know, we, this morning we've already we've heard about one election that was a surprise, which was the Malaysian election. We're now going to hear about the results of the referendum in Ireland, and um, I guess we now all know that um, the campaign to repeal the Eighth Amendment uh, has been successful, allowing the Irish government to legislate for abortion services. And during the weeks leading up to the referendum on May 25th, women from around the globe actually it was a huge global campaign travelled, many travelled back to Ireland just to vote or to help with the campaigning. And one of those women was Aoife Cook, who's a 3CR broadcaster, or Women on the Line, which was on earlier this morning. And uh, ten days before the referendum, she caught up with Karen Toomey, who's a television and film producer and also a co-founder of Repeal Global, uh, which was a campaign. And we're going to hear more about that in a minute, because Aoife begins by asking Karen about Repeal Global. Repeal Global was originally set up as an online platform to connect a kind of expats and our allies abroad um, to engage people to get involved in the fight to repeal the 8th for maybe people who couldn't vote or who felt like they didn't have a voice. 
from an online thing, it kind of grew into a global community of people uh, fighting to repeal the aid. How big is it now, do you know? It's kind of hard to keep track of the groups because some of them don't have a social media page. But we have 24 official repeal global groups from everywhere from like Guatemala to Melbourne to Vancouver, like everywhere really. A lot of um, repeal campaigners have been working on the ground in Ireland. What pieces of work did you decide would be the most useful? So in 2016 when we set Repeal Global up, we set it up originally to set up solidarity events abroad to coincide with the March for Choice that was happening in Dublin. So we ended up having 30 two solidarity events in 2016 from China to Cambodia to Melbourne to Vancouver. And it really grew from an online community, from Facebook, really. People started doing little solidarity events just that day to coincide in photo events and videos and protests and different things. From there, I think organic communities grew, like in repeal groups. And then from there, they've from doing solidarity events, they were doing like, we've done a lot of online events, fundraising, Online is kind of the network, but then people do, especially coming up to the referendum, are doing their own informational events abroad. And then that's kind of tied in with the kind of home to vote campaign, which London Irish Arc have kind of spearheaded. Well, tell us about that. What is it? The home to vote campaign, I suppose, is kind of modelled off the Yes Equality ones. And so obviously the Yes Equality campaign was Ireland's marriage equality referendum yeah, yeah. Uh, two, two years ago. Three. Three years yeah, ago, where a lot of uh, young people in particular around the world came home on the night of the vote or the week of the vote to vote. Mm-hmm. And so Home to Vote is modelled off that. Yeah, and uh, London Irish Abortion Rights Campaign kind of spearheaded that and they've like created a really great website and kind of all of the social media kind of stuff around that they've, they've created um, and the facts and everything because there's a lot of information to get through about the, the legalities of the voting and all that. From there, a lot of our repeal global groups and stuff have been doing different events. Like in Melbourne, you've been doing a lot of fundraising. And our next kind of thing in the next week or two is a Be My Yes campaign. So for people who can't afford to come home to vote or who can't legally vote, we're in the midst of editing a video for Be My Yes, just encouraging people online, you know, I can't vote, but please be my yes. And kind of here's why. So that's the campaign. People will make videos. Be my yes. Yeah, it worked. I know it worked really well for the uh, for the yes equality um, campaign as well, and it was quite powerful because there's so many Irish people abroad who can't vote. So can you explain a bit of the context about why people can't vote? If you've left Ireland and you've lived outside of Ireland for more than 18 months, you you just can't vote. Maybe you've moved to you know Australia like two months ago. And you might be le- eligible to vote, but like it's a lot of money to kind of come back as well. I feel sad that there's a lot of yes votes that kind of won't get to technically happen. Not just recently, but over the course of um, the time that Repeal Global has existed, what kind of reaction did you get? Definitely overwhelmingly positive, And it took off a lot more than we thought, because uh, I think it just gave people a platform. I don't think we did anything out of this world I think we just were like here lads does anyone want to do this with us and then people were like it just kind of people were like oh maybe we can do something so just literally put together just give people a platform um, and then from there I think it's got a lot of people engaged um, and kind of ignited abroad which like you might not be able to vote but that still matters because you're going to call your mum you're going to call your dad you're going to be you know maybe if you can you'll fly home to vote and I know that that's happened with a lot of people I know abroad. And like even Anne, like my sister and stuff, like she's really involved now in that. And that's impacted our family. 
and that the way I think a lot of them are going to vote and it's impacted my mum and the way she's going to vote. And my mum had never had a conversation about it and then when she found out that me and, and like my sister were you know, involved in it. From other sides of the world? From other sides of the world. So I was doing Vancouver and kind of the Repeal Global and my sister, who you know, was helping it in Melbourne. And my mum was kind of like, oh my God. And, so, and she'd never talked about it. She was on the fence. She wasn't kind of year and a, but she just was, you know, she's quite religious. But she got the train to Dublin and went to the march on her own in 2016 because we couldn't go. So she went up and she printed out letters that I wrote in to Kenny to give people. And she thought there was going to be like 20 people at the march. So she printed out like 20 copies. Yeah. And Enda Kenny was the prime minister at the time. Yeah. The yeah. And there was, of course, like 20,000 people at the march. So she ended up meeting my cousin there and went on a march from the country in Cork. And like, it was just amazing that that even, that, that was actually one of the most emotional things for me on the day when we had all these marches and 30, all of the hard work had like paid off. That was actually one of the most emotional things that my mum had like gone to the march in Dublin because of it. So it genuinely was inspiring. I'm, I'm sure not just to your mother though as well. A lot of people to mm. see the global support. Yeah, no, it has. And I think it's just, I think it's just made people feel like that they're involved in it. And especially like I was gone as well for Yes Equality and I know loads of other people were. And you feel like you're missing out in history. You're like, oh my God, like things are actually changing and like we have, we can make things change. And usually it's like, you know, local politics and like whatever. But like these are like huge historical things that you kind of, I remember feeling so sad when like Yes Equality happened. You're like, oh, I wish you were there to kind of help and just to see that change and so I'm hoping it's the same for this. I think it's a much it's a different fight, but are you feeling optimistic yourself? I'm feeling optimistic. I'm also aware of the fact like Brexit and Trump have happened. So I don't think we can take anything for granted and you know there's a, still a lot of hard work to do. I am I'm I'm hopeful that we are ready and that you know Irish women have been through enough for centuries and you know it's 2018 and I'm hopefully in the last year even with the me too and all of these these little things where it's kind of like, you know, women have been through a lot. Can we, can we just have a bit of choice? Can we just have control over our own bodies? So I'm, I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful. But, you know, there's still, still a lot of work to do. And that was uh, Karen Toomey interviewed by Aoife Cook. And, uh, and all that work has paid off. On May 25th, the Irish people voted to repeal the Eighth Amendment. And, and what that means is now that women don't have to travel uh, to Europe um, to actually have abortions. They can have a safe, a legal abortion at home in Ireland. And on the day of the vote, Irish journalist Lynn Enright wrote, Yesterday we travelled because we wanted to. I cry. <laughs> Sorry, I cried over this. Today we vote for the women who travelled because they were forced to. Take some pictures and show her 
um, a part of history that she was a part of. I brought her to vote with me yesterday, and a big part of my my vote was for her. Very emotional. Yeah. And <laughs> I just feel that the people of Ireland have put their arms around the women of Ireland. And it did feel like the people of Ireland had put their arms around uh, the women and the campaigners, and uh, that was the the celebrations at the announcement of the results of the referendum in Ireland. And that that audio from independent.co.uk, if you want to have a read um, about the referendum and, uh, and and you know find out a little bit more about what's uh, what's gone on there. It is 3CR Wednesday breakfast, um, about 10 minutes away from 8, and right now on the line uh, we have committee member for Liberty Victoria, uh, and also, <laughs> and I didn't even realise this until right now, but uh, also a presenter on Done by Law, which is Tuesdays at 6pm on 3CR, Gemma Caffarella. Gemma, welcome to the program. Hi, Nick. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming on, and I didn't realise that you're also a 3CR presenter, so small world. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah, fully fully paid off and committed 3CR um, fan <laughs> and, and presenter. Excellent. Now, um, today I wanted to uh, uh, talk a little bit about um, a couple of things. Maybe I'll... I'll start with, um, I had read an article just, uh, just the other day on nymag.com. Title of the article is Interview on What Went Wrong with the Internet. Um, a guy who was a founder of a VR company back in Silicon Valley, uh, back in the day, talking about some of the, um, driving motivators, uh, in Silicon Valley at the moment, uh, and, uh, also the, the sort of, um, changing technology around the world. And one of the things that he uh, he was talking about is that there is this system, you've probably heard of it, China uh, starting to score people, uh, provide social points to people that uh, and, and deduct social points from people uh, if you haven't done things like um, uh, pay fines or uh, if you've said something nasty about the party or, or things like this, uh, and, and then you might not be able to get on a train or travel uh, out of the country or get uh, your kids into a good school or things like this. So this sort of gamifying society uh, with this um, with this technology, and lots of us are shocked by it. But then on the other side, um, this article also pointed out that we, we actually do a lot of pretty strange things um, to ourselves. Uh, through the technology that we've got now anyway. It's just got a slightly different mechanism. Um, and in Australia, uh, Peter Dutton and the uh, Home uh, Home Affairs Department uh, are proposing some, some uh, pretty invasive laws. Do you want to talk to us a little bit, Gemma, about um, some of the things that have been proposed by the Home Affairs Department and the effects that it could have on the privacy of everyday Australians? Yeah, sure. Um, so the first thing uh, that listeners might be interested in is, I mean, what is the Home Affairs Ministry? Because um, it's not something that we've traditionally had in Australia, and so that's probably a good place to start. Um, so the Home Affairs Ministry is a new mega-ministry. Um, it's uh, basically Peter Dutton in control of ASIO and the Australian Federal Police and the Border Force um, and the Australian Criminal Intelligence Commission um, and a few other different um agencies of the Commonwealth Government. Um, so that's that's an interesting starting point when you think about the, the kind of reach that that ministry has in terms of the control um, that it can have over people. Um, and the Home Affairs Ministry has proposed two pieces of legislation that are before Parliament, um, which you're right, go some way um, towards bringing Australia into almost that Chinese-style um, surveillance 
uh, system. So the the two bills, the first is an identity uh, matching services bill. Um, so basically that allows different levels of government to share quite detailed amounts of information about people um, with each other. Uh, and the second is a passport identity matching bill. So that allows the Department of Home Affairs to have access to people's travel data. Um, now, interestingly, the the new legislation was initially supported by the states, um, but when they've seen the level of detail, it seems that some of them have um, backed off in their support um, because basically what it allows government to do is to compile a whole heap of data about people. Um, so data from their passports and their driving, um, so their, their driver's licences, um, driving records, uh, and it also quite scarily provides for facial recognition technology. Um, and, I mean, purportedly this was to identify um, things like identity fraud and terrorism um, and some of those um, kind of, I suppose, um, bigger, more serious issues um, that the government says it needs big powers to um, be able to deal with. Um, but it seems from the details of the bill that it will have fairly wide uses so, for example, it will be able to inform public and private sector services. Um, it will um, be able to be used in a range of ways that I think weren't really anticipated when the bill was first spoken about, and that's that's leading people to be quite worried um, about it. So we, we have this sort of narrative of, of it being this uh, counter-terrorism type policing and that we need it because we've got a world full of terrorists these days, but... <coughs> I noticed that uh, one of the uses that's being touted for this system is improving road safety through the detection and prosecution of traffic offences, mm. which seems a world apart from um, people blowing themselves up for extreme ideologies. Yeah, it doesn't have quite the, <laughs> the same level of um, <laughs> risk associated, I don't think, and that's, and that's really our concern, that something that's been ostensibly developed for these big big you know things that genuinely worry people um seems to in the in the detail be actually directed at um doing things like traffic offences which um i think if you asked a lot of australians whether they'd be okay with the idea that governments would collect and store a whole heap of their personal data um with very few limits and very few safeguards for the purpose of detecting traffic offences um i i i would hazard a guess at the fact that um a decent proportion of Australians would actually be quite worried about that. We know that this sort of technology isn't going away, that this big data algorithmic stuff is not going away. We're going to have more artificial intelligences being developed uh, to, to make something useful out of this data and create dynamic algorithms. Um, I mean, how do we move forward with this? Because we're going to see departments proposing things and, and wanting to use the, this technology for the greater good. But how do we how do we sort of define the greater good? And what does um, Liberty Victoria specifically have to say on what we should be looking out for with our, our privacy moving forward in the digital age? Yeah, so I think there's some pretty basic safeguards that we can... Um, demand government puts in place if they're going to have these types of surveillance um, systems. So, I mean, the first, and it's kind of an obvious point, but the first point is limits on what actually goes into the databases. 
So Liberty Victoria has actually um, drafted a submission in conjunction with a number of other councils for civil liberties around Australia, um, and that's on our website if anyone is interested, which is libertyvictoria.org.au. Um, but what we say is that there needs to be clear limits on what's going in, so only information going in where that's really strictly necessary, so that's the first safeguard that we've identified. Um, the second point is that there needs to be really clear limits on the use of the information. So, for example, there's real questions at the moment about whether this information will be limited to government-only uses um, or whether it should be able to be passed on to private companies. So, for example, if you uh, forget to scan um, a box of crackers when you're going through the checkout, the self-checkout at Coles, um, should, for example, Coles be able to use things like facial recognition technology and the information that government has um, in order to um, track you down in relation to what they say is the theft of a box of crackers. That's just a, a pretty low-level example. Um, so we'd like to see some real clear limits on the use of the information um, and and limits on who can view it. Um, and then another um, point is that um, even though this information is going to be held by government, um, there are real issues with security breaches. Um, so whether or not private um, or private people or private organisations can hack into the databases um, and get people's information, we want to see that there are uh, appropriate security measures in place. Um, and then... There's also the question of ensuring that the information can't be used in a discriminatory way to target or profile people. Um, so, for example, information that contains data that would allow people to be um, racially profiled or profiled by way of religion or those types of uses, we'd want to see really clear limits um, to make sure that the information isn't used in that way. And one of the ways that, um, that the councils for civil liberty have identified um, to avoid some of these pitfalls would be to establish a biometric commissioner, so an independent personal body um, that's established to allow people to um, ask them to, to investigate or intervene where we think that things aren't going very well. The website again is libertyvictoria.org.au and you can look for that statement from the Councils for Civil Liberties. Gemma, thank you very much for joining us on 3CR Breakfast this morning and um, you can also be heard on Done by Law 6pm on Tuesdays. Great, thanks very much for having me. <laughs> thanks Gemma and that is uh, Committee Member for Liberty Victoria, Gemma Caffarella, uh, who's also on Done by Law 6 o'clock on Tuesdays, talking to us uh, about um, the, the changing landscape of privacy in the digital yes. world. The movement towards a totalitarian state, it feels like. Yeah, incrementally, yes. Three CR, always bringing you the latest union news. They're coming after us at the moment. They want to get rid of penalty rates. The big push from businesses. They want to get rid of all the things that you and I have fought for. So there's tens of thousands of jobs gone contracted out to sham contracting arrangements. On 8.55am and on the web, 3cr.org.au.
sitting around. Well, jeez. <laughs> yes, <laughs> well, about now, I'm sure you've all seen, you know, the, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking somehow, Nick, because you've got two yeah, very young children mm. as well, the images of, of the sea animals, which you often show photos of to your kids and say, talk about them, and the, the images that we've seen on the television and um, on the Internet of, of, you know, the sea creatures, um, mammals and also seabirds with, uh, you know, lots of plastics and things like that in their bellies. It, it's really very disturbing, and, and oh, you know, we really need to begin working on, on that. I mean, we, we have been, but, you know, we need to step it up. So about two weeks ago, the Brisbane City Council moved to ban single-use plastic straws and water bottles and to phase out helium balloons from their events. The Marine Australian Marine Conservation Society, the AMCS, Welcome the news, and Jimmy Cardwell is on the line to tell us why. Welcome to 3CR, Jimmy. Good morning, Judith. Thanks for having me. Yeah, well, great to have you here. And uh, I'm just wondering, you know, why is this decision by the Brisbane Council so important? I know you for the society has welcomed it. Why is it so important? Sure. I guess it's, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a great step forward, and uh, really Brisbane Council is leading the way. Um, on this issue, and I could, like you touch in sort of the forward is yeah in, in our ocean worldwide. Uh, uh, sorry, Jimmy, I'm sorry to interrupt. Can you get a little, come a little closer to the phone? You're you're a bit soft. Am I? Is that better? Yeah, that is better. <laughs> yeah, thanks. Okay, yeah, sorry. I tell you, the phone lines here in Brisbane are terrible. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, no, um, I guess yeah, yeah, we 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 definitely welcome. Um, Brisbane City Council's move, and um, as, as you mentioned, plastics uh, unfortunately uh, not just around Australia but worldwide we're looking at quite a significant issue um, with plastics being essentially ubiquitous with um, with our oceans, and we're looking at it on a local level. Um, this is a, a great step in removing those large, like quite frequently polluting items. So you things like your plastic straws, your plastic bags, water bottles and the likes. Um, those those items have a rather significant impact on uh, you know, our amazing marine life. So, I mean, you know, on a local level here in Brizzy, we've got Morton Bay just out um, where the Brisbane River flows out. So the Brisbane River flows through Brisbane and then heads out into Morton Bay. And out there you've got quite amazing populations of like dugongs and dolphins and sea turtles of a... Um, a myriad of varieties, and we know and we've seen like the impacts of plastic pollution are having on those creatures, and we also know that um, it's a local, somewhat like a locally produced issue. So we know that it's coming out from this urban sort of centre of Brizzy. So to take out those um, significance of items, um, which you know the creatures consume, they get entangled in them, things like balloon strings and balloon heads, you know, in wings and um, beaks and all that sort of stuff. Um, so to get rid of those, yeah, it's a pretty pretty awesome step. From yes, it is. And and I understand that this really just relates to Brisbane City Council events. So That's it's not right. something that applies to the whole council area, but the events. So, so what difference will it make, um, given that it's really just the events of the council? Yeah, I guess important to recognise that Brisbane City Council, um, I don't know if it is, but it's definitely one of the biggest uh, councils in Australia. And um, 
it has in it's something around 50,000 events or affiliated events a year that will oh, be wow. impacted by this. Yeah, so you, you think every school, state, I mean, that's how many balloons go around <laughs> in that sort of environment if it's a council-backed one. Um, yeah, that's one example. But you, um, yeah, everything you can think of that council has an involvement with. But it's also um, quite a significant step just in the an Australian sense. Um, so it's uh, an example that other councils could quite easily follow. And, you know, um, if you're talking like large areas, councils are governing, um, that's a great way to then influence, you know, the folks in the community to do the same sort of thing and industry to sort of follow the way. So, yeah, like so, so yeah. you're saying yeah, that, Bris- sorry, <laughs> you're saying that Brisbane City Council is leading the way. Um, yeah. So I, I was interested in that. Are you know, is this a broader trend, say nationally or globally? But it, it sounds like maybe not. Are other councils doing this in Australia? There are examples of other councils that are um, taking some you know, really positive steps. So dotted around the country, um, uh, from the Noosa Council up like north, like an hour or so north of here. Um, yeah, Byron Bay, which is now so south of here, um, closer to, you know, there actually are some in the round Melbourne. Um, dare I say Darabin? I'm not sure. I actually can't remember from my head, but. Yeah, well, we'll have, Hobart we'll have to City follow Council. up and find out. <laughs> yes. yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, and Hobart City Capital too, but I'm, they're definitely making, um, their own sort of steps in, in that sort of positive sort of direction. Mm. Um, unfortunately, I don't know more off the top of my head. Oh, that, no, that's okay. I'm wondering, what do you say to people who say, why can't we have any fun anymore? Why can't we have helium balloons? How do you respond to that? <laughs> well, um, I, maybe, I don't know. I, I, you can go for a swim or go for a bushwalk. There's other ways <laughs> you can have fun that don't involve a, um, an item that's made of plastic and gets used for a couple of seconds and then... Um, you know, floats up into the air and then entangles a bird. Like, I, I can appreciate some people's angle on that, but at the same time, those, these things last forever. You know, yeah, and no fun, no fun, no fun for the birds. Yeah. That's, I, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, if, until you've seen a bird that is completely entangled these things and, you know, potentially even dead on the shoreline, it's not a great thing. So, and this, this item, this plastic glass, for a mm. long, a very, very long time. Nothing hasn't evolved with nature to have something that breaks it down naturally. So it lasts for so long that we don't know how many times those items have an impact on the sea creature. And, and I guess, you know, I'm speaking from someone from like Brizzy, but I'm sure every single folk in, in the country, like, they don't want to know that their marine creatures on their backyard yes. having to deal with this sort of stuff. And I think it's, yeah. It's a, something that we yeah. have to do to make sure that you know we've got that stuff for a lot longer to come. That's for sure. And if people listening want to take some action, what can they do? The well, I mean, I've always, I always had a focus. There's, there's a few different tiers. Sorry, Jamie, I can't back. hear you very well. Always, yeah. Is that, is that better? Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. I'll shift around. Um, yeah, we always say to folks that there's essentially sort of three ways that you can you can go about or that we, we focus on this issue is the first is what we do at home and what we do with our own sort of plastic use so um 
making those steps to use things that are reusable, like items that you can use for years or even decades, um, and focus on cutting down that sort of plastic use. Um, so more of a personal and like a community level. Um, the next sort of steps involve putting pressure on to industry and government to for more wide, widespread sort of um, ways of reducing the issues. So, for example, we spend a lot of time with, with, with government, so both state and, and federal, and you know, governments have that wonderful ability, if when they choose to, is to um, implement wide-scale eradication of these sort of problems if they wanted to. Um, so, like, on a Victorian level, um, the Victorian government said that they'd ban the plastic bags and was waiting for a date for that to happen, um, single-use plastic bags. The other thing is, like, cash for containers or what they call the container deposit schemes. So um, most states and territories around the country have one or are bringing one in the next couple of months. Um, Victoria hasn't put any movement in there. Um, we haven't heard anything so far as Victoria getting a cash for container. You know, like, Yes. Border, South Australia has had it from 1977. And yes, I, I know so that, I, actually, having yeah, lived there for to, a while. Yeah. You, you go to South Australia and you recognise that there's not a lot of that sort of litter lying around. And beverage, plastic beverage sort of containers are one of the pipe, like, largest forms of pollution in Australia. So implementing a very simple scheme that gives people an, a, an initiative to go and well, not to just drop it wherever it is or put it in just random bins. They take it to the location where they can get a refund. And that cuts amazing amounts, like 80% or so of pollution, just bang, can be overnight. So that's that's something on a Victorian level that we're definitely focusing on and encourage everyone to you know get in their local MPs here and say, hey, and this is something that can be a relatively quick fix, implement yes. it and... Well, Jimmy, we're, we're just about run out of time, but I really want to, I mean, you've given us some things to work on here in Victoria for sure. And I really want to thank you for coming on the show this morning and also for all the great work that the Australian Marine Conservation Society is doing. No worries at all, Jesus. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Bye. 2018 marks 20 years since senior traditional owner Yvonne Margarula invited supporters to come to Mirar Country within Kakadu National Park to blockade the proposed Jabaluka uranium mine. Thousands answered the call. The mine was stopped. To commemorate this extraordinary anniversary, Conjate Me Aboriginal Corporation and the Australian Conservation Foundation have produced a gorgeous commemorative calendar. Standing strong, Jabaluka 20 years is a piece of history you don't want to miss. Order your copy today at mirar.net. That's M-I-R-A-R-R.net a 3CR supporter. It's 3CR Wednesday breakfast. <laughs> and uh, you're with Nick. And, and Judith. Yes. We're just swapping names this morning. Yes, we, we are. <laughs> and uh, also um, we're missing Paddy a bit because um, now he's, uh, he won't be on the show for, for a few months because he's off to... Parenting land. ...to have a new baby. Yes. Yeah, we, we don't know. We're not sure. I d- I'm not sure of what the actual date is. But, uh, yeah, big, um, big but, hello to... But we have, begs. we have been enjoying the fantastic work of uh, Idawan, who's sitting, uh, sitting across from us, uh, panelling, and has um, done so almost flawlessly this morning. Um, and uh, th- so thank you for that, uh, Idawan. Well, no I problem. Think, uh, <laughs> thank, you, thank you for having me on. 
<laughs> and I think as flawless as anyone, really. And excellent, excellent work, Edwin. Been great having you there. It's about uh, 15 minutes past eight. It's exactly 15 minutes past eight, I think. And uh, on the phone, we have Rick Sarr from the University of South Australia, Professor Rick Sarr. And uh, about two weeks ago, the federal government uh, announced new powers to allow police to stop people at airports and demand identification. The Prime Minister suggested that this is to protect the safety of Australian people, but does it? Rick Sars, an, yeah, I've already ended, is an adjunct professor of law and criminal justice at the University of South Australia, and uh, he conducts research in security law, among many, many, many other things. Rick, are you there? I am here, Judith. Good morning, Nick. Good morning. <laughs> Good morning. Great to talk to you this morning. And uh, so I guess my first question is kind of the obvious. Will this move give police to move to give police new powers to stop people at airports and demand identification? Is it going to keep us safe? Well, that's an interesting question, and one that really hasn't been answered, which is a bit strange, because if you think you introduced something, you should have the answers already, but uh, it's very speculative. I should just say, yes, it's being mooted. It's not there yet. It's still going to go through the various parlamentary processes. Oh, I'm so glad to uh, hear that. The Estimates Committee as well. (laughs) So we're just kind of tossing around this idea at the moment. But uh, what I find very strange is that we spend uh, tens, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars every year looking at how best to improve policing, what policing initiatives are the most effective. We know a lot about policing these days. We've got all sorts of police institutes and police training institutes and police research areas. And nothing that I've seen in any of that literature tells me that we're any safer or the police powers to actually stop and question people at random are going to make a scrap of difference. Well, who who currently has policing roles at airports? Airport roles are all taken by the Australian Federal Police, the AFP, because essentially, as you may know, or your listeners may know, uh, airports around this country are all owned and controlled by the federal government. So the only policing that can be done is either by the Australian Federal Police or indeed the Protective Service or uh, or the military for that matter, but not local police. Local police can only be called into an airport uh, if there is a disturbance and uh, and their uh, invitation is extended. So at oh, the moment, okay. uh, the AFP. Uh, I didn't. I actually, I wasn't airports. aware. I wasn't aware of that. So thank you for for clarifying that. Yeah. So I, I imagine. Also add, Judith, yeah, yeah. Go on. Sorry. Well, I was going to say. I should also add that um, most of the security at this stage, as your listeners would know, is contracted privately to private contractors oh, uh, to yes. do the screening and also to do the little random bomb tests, etc. So that's not the AFP, that's private security. And they have general powers of citizen arrest, for example, uh, but not uh, the sort of powers the AFP has and certainly no power to stop and question people. Okay, so what powers do the AFP have already? They have the power to... Basically, uh, stop, question, search, uh, arrest anyone whom they believe is committing an offence or has just committed an offence or indeed is about to commit an offence if they've got a reasonable suspicion. Uh, and, and by offence, we mean a serious offence, so an offence that actually would lead to a, a period of imprisonment. So what I think Andrew Colvin, the AFP commissioner, has said, and I think he's passed this on to Mr Dutton and the Prime Minister, is that that threshold is too high. He'd rather have something which was a little bit lower than that, namely a general suspicion that the person is acting uh, acting suspiciously. 
and in those circumstances, they'd like to have the power to stop and randomly uh, ask that particular person for identification. Now, that's a much lower threshold, looking suspicious, as opposed to committing an offence. It certainly is, and um, yeah, and kind of worrying because it's such a subjective judgment in a way. Well, that's the, that's the difficulty with anything like this. And what we do have is a lot of literature that says that given those powers, and those powers exist in uh, random stop and search laws in some cities, in the United States, for example, and in some countries, uh, given those powers, typically uh, the people who have those powers tend to racially or socially profile people they are stopping and searching, or stopping and questioning, stopping and asking for identification. And so typically if someone is of unkempt uh, appearance or is, is uh, of Middle Eastern uh, looking or is wearing religious dress or has got some tears in their jeans or they've got dreadlocks and they suddenly start shouting and yelling because they're upset about something, uh, typically those are the people who will be questioned and, and, and asked for, uh, for identification, not you and me. Uh, I'm wearing a suit and a tie. I would not be stopped. Someone who's wearing... Um, a religious dress or might be a Middle Eastern appearance is more likely to be socially and racially profiled. Yes, and uh, from the recent, I mean, certainly that that's a huge issue. And, and, you know, my experience of airports is it's sometimes quite easy to get upset at an airport if, you know, your your flight's been cancelled or, 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 you know, you're saying goodbye to people that you love. You know, it could be quite an emotional time, so there'd be probably a lot of things that might might attract your attention, you know, no matter how you look. For You know, this is a huge issue. But I, I know you've done a lot of research in this area, and I'm wondering, about, um, you know, from what you've read and research you've conducted yourself, if this new power actually is granted, is it likely to have an effect or what effect is it likely to have? You've mentioned racial profiling, religious profiling. Uh, Any other effects it may have? Well, the consequence of that is the important one, and that is that the people who then are stopped the people who then are saying, well, the only reason they stopped and asked me for identification was because I was dressed in this particular way, I looked in this particular way, or I was with a whole bunch of friends who looked in this particular way. And that breeds resentment. Just think, and I'll ask your listeners, just think every time that you're asked to do something that involves some inconvenience to you, you know, you're trying to get a flight or you want to say goodbye to loved ones, and someone's sort of stopping and questioning you and seeing why you're there and who you who you're with and what you're doing and can you show some identification, the first thing you're going to say is, why pick on me? Why don't I go and get some real criminals Uh, rather than someone like myself who's just going about my business in a normal way but I've been drawn to their attention because of the way I look. And in those circumstances, that person suddenly has resentment. And the first thing you want to do when when you're resenting someone is not help them. And what the information tells us is that if people are racially and socially profiled, they suddenly breed this kind of resentment against the authorities. And if there's resentment against the authorities, you're not going to help the authorities if and when you might start getting information. So the flow of information to police starts drying up. You get people pissed off. You're not going to get much cooperation from them when something really serious is going down. So that's the concern. The concern is that the flow of information, which actually solves 99.9% of uh, terrorism activity, is going to start drying up, and that's what you don't want to do. You don't want people resentful. You want people actually to cooperate with you because they think you're doing the right thing legitimately. If it looks to you like they're doing things illegitimately, picking on you for all the wrong reasons, 
you're not going to be behaving in the way they want you to. You're not going to cooperate. You're less likely to be giving them the information they need. Rick, Nick here. Um, really interesting point. Why can't we get this point clearly across to those people who just uh, want to say, you know, throw out platitudes like, oh, if you've got nothing to hide, you've got nothing to worry about, and, and you know, if, you, if you're not guilty, then, then you shouldn't have to worry about these things, because that to me seems really obvious. If you want to build good policing, you want to build trust with people, you want to build, a rela- it's a relationship, and it's about a relationship, rather than this kind of constant fear that you're going to be questioned unnecessarily, stopped unnecessarily, and have your, your liberty revoked slowly. What, why can't people get this? Yeah, well, that's, that's, the, that's this whole summary, Nick, and I think you've captured it perfectly there. The people who tend to say, oh, Rick, Nick, you're over-killing this, and if people have got nothing to hide, then they've got nothing to worry about, they're not Aboriginal. They're not of Middle Eastern appearance. They're not people who wear dreadlocks. They're not people who might be wearing uh, religious dress. These are the ones who constantly find that in a free society like ours, they're less free than the rest of us. And that's the great concern. Um, I remember rep- representing Aboriginal uh, men years ago when I was in legal practice who constantly say, you know, if I'm walking down the street with a bunch of friends, I'm the one that police want to stop. You know, what is it about my swarthy appearance that makes me uh, look like I'm less law-abiding than the others? So anyone who says... If, if you've got nothing to hide, you've got nothing to worry about, simply has not put themselves in that particular position. And that's the great liberty that we celebrate in this democracy of ours. If we start going down the path of suggesting that a person is no longer free to associate, free to walk down the street, free to remain relatively anonymous, then we've thrown away the sorts of freedoms that we've fought so hard over these last decades to, uh, to achieve. Yes, and, you know, when I see people being targeted in that way, even though I'm a, a you know, fairly middle-class-looking, ordinary-looking kind of person, I feel unsafe. You know, I don't think it is just the people that are likely to be targeted. I think we all feel unsafe when we see these kinds of activities going on. Um, Judith, I, 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 I agree with you. And what, what concerns me, I come back to that first point I made again, that we actually do have a lot of research um, findings and a lot of material that's coming out of the literature from people who know what they're talking about and have done the research and they say the best way, the best way to attack terrorism, the best way to make us feel safe in our homes is to ensure the flow of information and to, and to, to get at the root of those people who are in the community who might be wanting to do us harm. And the best way to do that is to encourage cooperation with police not to piss people off. And right. that's what this, that's why this flies in the face of all that. And come back to the next point before, why do people do this? Why are politicians sprouting these things? It's because it makes us sound like we're doing something about the issue. Yes, indeed. And this is just kind of taking us down the particular path of throwing out a platitude and, well, if we're going to stop people at random in the airports, why not stop them in the car park? Why not stop them driving to the airport? Why not stop them walking down the main streets of our cities? And that's where we start running the real problems. That's when we start abandoning the sorts of freedoms and protections that all of us have, not to be stopped and searched and randomly asked for uh, identification uh, by people in authority. And that's the sorts of freedoms we should be celebrating, and they're not the ones we should be throwing away on the absence, complete absence of evidence being going to make a scrap of difference. Yes, I mean, I like the way you ended that, your article in the conversation. You paraphrase former Prime Minister Robert Menzies saying the greatest tragedy that could overcome a country would be for it to implement a policy in defense of liberty and lose its liberty in the process. 
I think that really sums up the kinds of things that you've been talking, we've been talking about here this morning. And in fact, it's interesting, Judith, that I found that in a speech um, that Malcolm Turnbull made a couple of years ago. Uh, how, <laughs> in- how ironic! <laughs> so, if your listeners wanted to Google uh, Turnbull quotes Menzies on liberty, they'll probably find that particular speech. I forget the exact context of it now, but he was certainly saying how important it is that we celebrate the sorts of freedoms that we have in this country and not throw them away very easily. Now, and I come back to that point. If someone had shown that in, in experience overseas, in all countries around the world, that random stopping and questioning and, and seeking identification had made any difference at all in airports to security, then they would have done that by now. What's interesting is the people who talk to me about security at airports is to say, well, the best way of stopping um, uh, concerns around flying at airports is to stop passengers from going sorry, to allow passengers through and to stop any visitors going past the screening. And if you go to any American airport, uh, you'll find that you can't, as a visitor, go into the actual place where the flights either arrive or depart. Yes, that's right. I've got to go to the baggage in order to get my friends Mm -hmm. to meet me. I've got to say goodbye to them when I'm going into the security for the first time. Yes. Of course, we can't do that in Australia. Why not? Because (laughs) our airports want people to park see their relatives off, go right to the gate and go back and find their 12 or $15 car park fee, and while they're there, have a cup of coffee and do some shopping. In other words, right. we, so, we, so we, lots, if you really wanted to make our airport yes. secure... So lo- lots visit. more lots more to look at. I'm sorry to There's be cutting in, to <laughs> cutting in, uh, Rick, but we're just about at the end of time. So thank you so much for coming on the programs. That was uh, Professor Rick Saar from uh, the University of South Australia on why random identification checks at airports are a bad idea. Thank you so much. My pleasure, Judith. My pleasure, Nick. Bye. Yeah. Thank you, and thank you to uh, everyone who's been on the program this morning. Gemma Caffarella was from Liberty Victoria, and we uh, spoke to her uh, a bit earlier. James Chin, also at the very beginning of the show. Well, not the very beginning, but early in the show uh, on the Malaysian election. He's from the University of Tasmania and the Asia Institute there. Uh, the Womanjeka Festival with uh, Lady Lash, we Yay. heard from. Well, how great to speak with her. Uh, and uh, fle- uh, poem much earlier from Fleecy Malay. Uh, as well, and um, and with Karen Toomey on the um, Irish referendum, so that was great to hear from her. 3cr.org.au is the website for more information about things that you've heard for a podcast and a, a rundown of what's happened this morning on the program. Um, <coughs> excuse me. Up next is uh, stick together. together. Thank you. Stick together. <laughs> this has been 3CR Breakfast. It it's the has. 30th of May. And Nick and Judith and Idwin. Thanks, Idwin. 3CR relies on the support of ethical organisations to keep our vital community of voices on air. And we'd like to thank our breakfast supporters, the new international bookshop, Nibs, at Trades Hall, and eco-friendly paper and printing outfit, Earth Greetings. You can check them out at nibs.org.au and earthgreetings.com.au. And if you'd like more information on how your organisation can become a 3CR supporter, contact the station on 03 9419 8377.